0: Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Tomplay in conjunction with iHeartRadio and Cloud 10 Media. Free was over, son. Yeah, you thought you had it licked, but Detective Overtown made you turn to shit. <laughs> whoa, 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 Get ready, you're gonna do. So- this episode of real life real crime the podcast may contain descriptions of acts of violence or that are of a sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i did not get the facts of these cases off of the internet or from some television show the facts i'm retelling you were presented to me by the victims of the crimes are the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims. My description of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And before we get started, y'all, I just want to say... Welcome to Season 9 of Real Life, Real Crime, which is amazing. And this is our first episode ever in conjunction with our partners, iHeartRadio and Cloud 10 Media. It's going to be awesome. Back to the episode. It's going to be the most disturbing thing probably that I've ever told y'all about. I don't know what to say. It's got to be at least two parts, y'all. And that's because I wanted to do the initial what happened. And then I, the second one will bring everything into clarity for you because then we're going to delve into the mind of pure evil. So and I haven't even thought of a name of this episode yet, but I guess we'll call it Mr. Nice Guy. Stay tuned for a smaller story after the show. Where I tell you what happened during the Hurricane Ida. So on October twenty third, two thousand twelve, the Livingston Parish dispatch received a nine one one call from a residence on Milton Road, which is real close to the town of Walker, Louisiana. Y'all. And you know, dispatchers hear a lot from the funny to the the most bizarre, et cetera. But the dispatchers were not prepared for what they were going to hear on this call. Now, I want y'all to know, I have this full case file in front of me. I've heard the 911 call, and, you know, I never try to do anything to sensationalize th- these acts of horror but I have to be able to tell you certain facts so I can paint the picture and the, tell the story correctly. But I'll digress for a second. My heart goes out to this family, as always, as all victims. But there's nothing I'm going to tell you that's not part of the public record. And, matter of fact, there's a lot that I'm not going to tell you that's a part of the public record because it's just too horrible to hear. So let's go back to October 23rd, 2012. The call, 911 come, call comes in and they hear a mail on the phone and they hear the phone drop. And to, for lack of a better way to describe it, they hear the most horrific screaming, begging, and pleading by a female, she's pleading for her life. And they hear the male screaming and shouting, but then they they can actually hear these acts of violence that are going on. Of course they're saying, caller, are you there, call her, are you there? Well, no, he wasn't there. The phone's already on the floor, but they can hear this. Now, so what does the dispatcher do? They immediately dispatch it out. All units, we have a nine one 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 oh three D in progress screaming it is ongoing at this time at this residence on Milton Road. All units please respond. So where Milton Road is, y'all, the first officer to get there was a Walker City police officer. He approaches the residence, and, and within seconds, uh, a blue and white or a Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office deputy would pull up on the scene. Also, they approach the residence; they could hear the screaming. Says, "Take the door," and they walk in to the scene. a scene—a nightmare. Cops have to see a lot of bad things, horrible things. That I promise you. They'll never see what they saw when they took that door again. God, I hope they don't. But when they took the door, they look look in, and it's opened into the kitchen area, and they see a white male standing over a female. The female's throat has been slashed. He's standing over her, and his hands are inside of her stomach. Obviously, her stomach has been slashed open. Her hands are inside his stomach, and they hear him say, Why aren't you dead yet? Why aren't you dead yet? While he's digging around inside of her intestines. Now, this is all in a millisecond, y'all. At the same time they look over and there's a dead baby on the floor still attached to the mother by the umbilical cord. So they rush in, get hands on him, pulling him off of her. He's fighting like mad. Okay, so when dispatch called it out, they needed to go ahead and roll medical, um, but medical being an ambulance. The ambulance arrives on scene, but they can't go in to render assistance until the scene is secure. It's not secure, y'all. They're fighting this guy like he's fighting for his life, and they get him outside of the residence. They're able. He's covered in blood. And, and they're fighting him to get the blood on themselves. And at some point, they were able to get cuffs on him, but he's back up against the blue and white. He raises his legs up and kicks both feet and kicks the deputy so hard in his chest that it knocked him off his feet, and he lands and hurts his his skull and his leg gets injured fights on. Still, more deputies arrive on the scene, and at some point, they were able to pin him down and get him down enough where medical can rush in. The paramedics rush in, and they see the horror. It's blood everywhere, baby on the floor, mom's on the floor, throat slit, Stomach slashed open, everything exposed. A checker, she's got a pulse. The baby is dead. The baby has cuts across the back of his legs and his buttocks, but more importantly, it's been cut from ear to ear but across the top of the skull and the knife, had actually penetrated the skull. You could see. Of course, they checked the baby. It had no vital sign, but you could see there was no way the baby could have lived through that. So what do they do? They have to actually cut the umbilical cord on the baby to get the mama out to try to save her life. They get her on a stretcher, They take her out. They've called for air med, the helicopter, and they get her off the scene. She's flown to the hospital. All right, y'all. So what's happening at this point? Deputies would have called in for detectives, supervisors, pretty much everybody. Obviously, this is the worst scene any of them have ever seen. And you know the baby's been murdered. The mom with a slit throat and and whose abdomen's been split open and and the guy was digging around inside of her, doesn't look like she's gonna make it. So the detectives start responding and of course, First thing they do is tell them, rope it off. It's a crime scene, right? So they make the big crime scene. Hey, y'all, making content is an essential part of what I do to keep this show going. But it hasn't always been a seamless creative process. Y'all know I'm always on Instagram, Facebook, and now the Real Life Real Crime app. And let me tell you something, it's not easy editing content. Ever since I found Canva Pro, I can design anything like a pro on any device. Designing of a Canva Pro is amazingly fast and fun. Choose from thousands of templates that are easy to customize, or you can start from scratch. Look y'all, I use it. They have a library of tools and features and imagery, and you don't have to pay for pictures anymore. They're virtually endless options that you can use with Canva Pro. Design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash R-L-R-C to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash R-L-R-C. Canva slash R-L-R-C. Now, the call this call is is unusual. What sticks in my mind about it is the way it plays out. So let me describe it to you. The first detective gets on the scene. It's not going to be like the lead detective that works on the case, but the, so other detectives respond, and they get there and immediately they establish put a, a uniform patrol deputy. There to take notes of who goes in and out of the scene, but they have to go inside the scene, and there's blood everywhere. Now, Acadian, the the ambulance people, actually wrap the baby up and put it to the side, uh, wrapped it up in, a, in some type of cloth and put it to the side. But then, when they go in, and just to do the initial look, and they and they see the baby. They, you know you have a murdered baby, and so rightfully so. Same thing I would have done. They back out at that point and, and call dispatch and say, "Call the Louisiana State Police Crime Lab." Also, call the sheriff and let them know what we're looking at. Now, y'all, this isn't your regular murder case. This is, you know, this is going to be a death penalty case especially if the mama doesn't live. So everybody starts responding. Now, including they had to call the coroner. I think the word spread quickly about what had happened, not only because of the horrific 911 call I and mean, people were talking about it there, but then when, you, know, you hear, as the sheriff, you hear that a lady had her throat slit and... When the officers arrive on scene, they had to re- fight the suspect first of all. But one of the, your deputies is hurt and had to go to the hospital from fighting this guy. That's one thing. But when you hear the horrific nature of what they saw and what he was saying, why aren't you dead yet? And in his hands are inside her abdomen. I mean, you know, this is going to be a high profile case, obviously. So. Everybody starts to show up, and, and I'll fast forward just a little bit. It takes a while, y'all, when the state police crime lab to get there. You know, they got to come from headquarters in Baton Rouge, and, and so Chuck Watts would have been the senior detective on the scene, and he immediately gets there and instructs another one of the detectives to start taking statements from the witnesses. Now, what are, what's different on this case, y'all, than the other ones? Your witnesses aren't your neighbors. The witnesses are the cops who saw and heard what I already told you about. And certainly even veterans, the biggest veteran in the world cop, would have been shaken up by this. But now you got a, a cop that's, that's going to, to get medical attention because of it and everything else, but then they, you know, locking up the statements on why aren't you dead yet and what you saw. I'm not trying to be too graphic or to sensationalize this, but this has to be told. This has got to be a death penalty case. So, the detectives get statements from the deputies and the Walker police officer that arrived on the scene first. Other than that, there's not much you can do with the work the crime scene. Of course, they would have ran found out the guy's name and ran his criminal history and all that, and he didn't have anything. But by the time the crime lab gets there, you know, no has been back in the residence. The crime lab goes in and does what they do, right? So I know it, but and y'all know I'm raw and unscripted, but a lot of parts on this case, I've got to read some things to you because I don't want to mess it up, and I want you to have a description of it. So, this is state police crime lab. They go in, they work the scene, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read you the report, which obviously would have been written afterwards. I'm going to read you a part of it. So, they say they responded to the address of the scene was 30259 Milton Road in Walker, Louisiana. In this report, blood, tissues, and feces. As described below, should be considered suspected because no confirmatory testing was done at the crime scene. Upon entry to the residence, a drip trail of blood was observed on the cement in the front of the entrance and along the walkway into the kitchen between the wall and the cabinet. Large amounts of blood were observed on the kitchen floor and on the adjoining bathroom floor. Feces and body tissue were also observed in these areas. Blood was observed on several surfaces in the kitchen and bathroom, including the cabinets, refrigerator, washer and dryer, bathroom sink, cabinet, walls, and other miscellaneous items. Blood was also observed in the doorway between the kitchen and the living room. The deceased male fetus was wrapped in a blanket on the couch in the living room. Scene detectives stated that EMS cut the umbilical cord to transport the mother to the hospital, and first responding officers removed the fetus from the kitchen floor, wrapped him, and placed him on the couch. Several lacerations were observed on him, including deep and superficial cuts to the back of the legs, buttocks, and back, and a large uneven cut across the top of his head, through the skin and skull, almost from ear to ear. And I'll stop it there, y'all. It goes on to talk about uh, they recovered the um, a black-handled kitchen knife with about a three-and-a-half-inch blade and in the middle of a large pool of blood in the kitchen next to the bathroom doorway and stove. They also recovered his pants, which were hanging from the Driver side view mirror area of a black car in the front of the house. Uh, and they, all the stuff was packaged, y'all, and, and, and sent in for the analysis. But one of the main things that recovered was a package of Mr. Nice Guy potpourri. All right. Was collected from the ground outside of the north wall of the house. And they collected a smoking device, and two packages of KUSH potpourri and one package of WTF potpourri from his bedroom. All of it was sent in for processing. All right, y'all, so let's talk about that. What they're talking about on, on the Mr. Nice Guy and the KUSH and all that is, is synthetic marijuana. You know, which you can order or you get it at a gas station way back then, right, in, in 2012 or 13, whenever this was, which I I would never understand. You know, I understand a, a meth head because they have an addiction and the meth is made of pure poison, right? And that's why you see a meth head and they have the sores on the cells. That's because the body's trying to process out the poison and, and it ends up pouring through the pores in the skin. And the, so they pick at it, pick at it. And that's where the source from come from. But the synthetic marijuana, I don't get that. You know that shit is is nothing but pure bad chemicals. But let's go back to the scene. On this one, y'all, the, the state police crime lab worked it. But at at this time, by or by this time, the sheriff Jason Ard, had showed up, and the district attorney himself. Scott Paraly had showed up on the scene. He never showed up on any of my scenes in my entire career. And y'all know some of my stories, right? So this gives you an idea of how dramatic and and unusual this case was. So the crime scene would have got done processing it and, and taking the photos, et cetera, and collecting their evidence. Well, at some point, When they get done, they leave. The coroner will then go in with the detectives and have to recover the baby's body. So they do that. And they go in, and and of course, they unwrap it and document the same wounds uh, that I described the state police had done. And then, for the horror of the term, they tag it and bag the baby the difference between a baby body bag is this body bag would have been, first of all, it would have been white, okay? And they're they're a smaller bag. They're not gonna roll out a a six and a half foot black body bag for a a seven and a half month old baby. And y'all, I I don't give a shit what your views are and when, when a fetus is a baby or whatever, whatever. I'm calling it a baby. Seven and a half months old, that's a baby to me. You know, I know nowadays with preemies and stuff like that, that seven and a half months, that baby's got like a 90-plus percent chance of living. So, But anyway, they tag and bag the baby. Now, on this particular white, smaller body bag, the and Back in my day, we used the plastic locks, and that's all documented, right? you got to establish a chain of custody. It's huge in any criminal case. On this one, they did it with a, a aluminum tag. It's still a lock. It goes in and has the serial number on it, et cetera. And they take it, and the funeral home, as on every single death case, whether it's a suicide, homicide, overdose, or whatever, The funeral home comes and gets the body, all right? In this case, it's not a natural death or whatever, so it always goes to the same funeral home where the autopsies are conducted at. So the funeral home technicians, once the coroner's tagged and the detectives tag the baby, they put it on a stretcher to take it out. It's now the chain of custody established. They take it, standard procedure. They take it to the building behind the funeral home where the autopsies are done and the bodies are prepared for burial, and they put it in a cooler. Not normally a problem, y'all, but I'll get to that in a second. Later on that night, the detectives went and interviewed the suspect, the one that had his hands inside his wife's stomach, and saying, well, aren't you dead yet? at the hospital advising his rights. And, you know, first he wasn't gonna talk, then they they showed him some pictures of everything and, and, you know, he's upset, what have you. Another set of detectives, when they get ready, they go to the funeral home to have the autopsy of the baby conducted. Now, mom's um, in ICU in the hospital, still alive though. But they go to the funeral home, and they say, okay, let's get the baby out to do the autopsy. And guess what? Can't find the baby. baby's not there. Real life, real crime. Hey y'all, being locked up at home, we all got away with shaving less than we used to, right? Including my wife. But it's time to get friendly with your razors again, people. Because for me, summertime means shaving more often. But That devil goes for my wife wearing bathing suits and shorts, etc. And there's no better razor out there for her than the Athena Club razor. Shaving used to be something she dreaded, but Athena Club's products make it more fun and easier for her to shave. Not only is it the prettiest razor she's ever seen, but it also is gentle on her skin, leaving it moisturized and super smooth and bump free, and y'all know I like that. Cindy loves that the razor is designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while she's being gentle on her curves. It's no wonder their razor has thousands of five-star reviews. The razor blade's surrounded by water-activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid, which Sydney swears is a holy grail for skin care. The best part is the razor kit is only nine bucks and comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage, and your choice of handle color. And Sydney loves that the razor has cute handle color options, but they also have black and white razors for all you minimalists out there. Sydney's favorite is sky blue. And guess what? I've even used it on my beard. Show your skin you care with Athena Club Razor Kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code R-L-R-C. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code R-L-R-C for 20% off. Now, at what point do you think they said, oh, fuck me? you know, we have a real issue here. Probable death penalty case all day long. You get there to do your autopsy and you can't find the baby. All right, so I'm gonna tell you what happened in this part and I will read part of it to you because I think it's so important. So when they get there and they realize they can't find the baby, then they go no shit mode and call out Stan Carper and the chief of detectives and call out, I and mean, they like, you got to find out what the fuck's going on now, and Sugar is definitely turned to shit on this case. I mean, how do you explain it? I can tell you how a fucking defense attorney would explain it and, and would be able to, in a direction to get this guy off. But they had to conduct an investigation, and let me tell you what happened. They interviewed the different employees and, but there's this one guy who was doing cremations and uh, y'all, the crematory is in the same, I mean, it's, you have to walk through one door where you do autopsies. Okay. Let me describe to you again. When, when you walk up to this building, there's, a, they have two roll-up doors, which they never use, but that's where the crematory is or crematorium, however you say it. And but you walk in through this little door. There's a little love seat on on the right hand side. Then I think there's like six coolers, uh, stainless steel doors on the left where they put the bodies. And you walk. Uh, then there's a little bathroom on the right hand side. Then there's a door on the left across from the bathroom that goes into the crematorium, or double doors. Then you walk right past there, and there's two. Slabs where they prepare the bodies with the drain that runs around the wall when they drain the blood out, etc. And you take a left into another room, with two more tables, and that's where the autopsies were done. So everybody's in those shit mode, can't find the baby. What well, you got to do, you got to conduct investigation. So they interview the, the employees, and there's a guy I'm not going to say names, y'all. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. That's why I didn't say the name of the funeral home, etc. But this story needs to be told that they interviewed This guy and he says he did in fact perform two cremations that evening on August twenty third, two thousand twelve. One a white male uh, at approximately four pm that took in excess of three hours, and later that evening on a white female. And he was asked if he saw a small body bag between the female's feet when he took her from the cooler. before placing her in the crematory, and he advised no. He went on to say that he has done thousands of cremations, and if the body was placed where we told him, y'all, I'm reading this off, uh, Stan Carpenter's report, where we told him it was, he would have seen it. Upon questioning him further, he was asked if it would have been possible that the small body bag had been placed up higher more between the female's legs or somehow slid up higher between her legs could he have not seen it and he stated that could be possible as was stated early in this report the female was wearing a white knee-length gown and was placed on a white sheet and the body bag containing the fetus was also white the bodies that are placed in the cooler when removed are slid out in the horizontal position which means if the body bag was under the gown of the female it could have possibly remained stationary while it was being moved from the cooler to the rolling gurney and then to the crematory if the body bag containing the fetus was even slightly higher than where i'm not gonna say his name said he put it in the white color of the bag could have easily blended in with the white gown and the white sheet not saying his name, had also advised that when he placed the white male mentioned above in the crematory, he was in there for over three hours. While the subject was being cremated, he advised that he left the crematorium for three hours unattended. Upon returning, he advised he was in somewhat of a hurry as it was getting late and he still had to cremate the female. We learned that even though not saying his name, did leave the area. The funeral home had other employees there as a wake was in progress and a certain amount of security was still maintained. Upon talking with the coroner as well as employees at the funeral home, it is believed that the fetus in question was cremated by mistake and there is no reason for us to believe that foul play was involved. Any further investigation into this matter will be conducted by the Livingston Parish coroner's office or an agency of their choosing. All right. yeah, Let me tell you about this, and I'm going to wrap this part up, okay? While this is all going on and they're in the oh shit mode, what does the funeral home do? They got to look for the baby. And if it's believed that the baby was cremated by accident where you got to look, you got to look in the ovens. That's what I call them. I don't know what the hell they call them, but that you got to look in the oven where, you know, the female was cremated. So what do they do? They go to the oven because her ashes haven't been removed yet. They go to the oven and they run a magnet through all the ashes. They don't get anything. Then they have to go through the ashes by hand. Now, what are they looking for, y'all? They're hoping that they can find that aluminum body bag tag, whatever you want to call it, the lock. They go through it by hand, and they find one piece of severely melted shriveled up aluminum that cannot be positively identified as the tag from the body bag but it can't be said that it wasn't either but but the, the administrators of the funeral home had to admit that could have been a feeling out of someone's mouth like a tooth feeling right from a dentist so what do you do with that fuck i don't know i'm glad i wasn't there i mean it, it's you know but it, i, I mean, stuff happens i mean human error I, I don't believe there you know was any intentional foul play or anything like that but you you know you got a guy who's tired and he's been working all day and whatever and and you know what he didn't know there was a baby it, obviously in there waiting for an autopsy and in the and why they didn't put a baby on it in its own cooler I don't know uh, I've worked a lot of baby autopsies and they always came out in their own cooler so I don't answer, I don't know that one but that just goes into the story and the horror of it that the family didn't even have chance to bury this baby and they can call it a fetus whatever they want to I'm calling it a baby that's a shit show right and and I get it the suspect they interview him at the hospital and I'm gonna get to in more detail than that in in the next episode but he had to be sedated in the hospital because he was so whacked okay now, remember I told you they found the cush and They found this synthetic marijuana and the smoking device, et cetera. S- certainly, you would think the dude's high on on something. And when when you come in and you saw what they saw, and then he fights some tooth and nail, uh, they get into the hospital, they have to sedate him because he's, he's going crazy. But it was later on in the night, they showed up advised him his rights and, and and told him what happened. He said he had no recollection. And the baby being burned up, man. It, the, the, but, but y'all, look, I talked to, and I, I'm not saying all the detectives' names and stuff on purpose, but I talked to um, some of the ones that I am seeing, and, and one guy told me, and he's a veteran, a veteran veteran. He said, Woody as the most fucked up thing I've ever seen. And he said, I've seen so much shit. And he said, that is the only one that burns in my memory to this day. He said, you wouldn't believe you wouldn't believe what I saw in dealing with this cat and him fighting us and, and everything else. It's just unbelievable. So, high profile certainly, the sheriff, the district attorney. Oh, uh, the not only did the state police crime lab come out, all the senior and I know this because I read the report. And I'm not going to say their names because some of them are, are undercover and the, they were friends of mine. I was at state police at this time, but when this happened, but their senior criminal investigators came out. Why? because everybody knew this was like the worst case they had ever heard of. I mean, think about it. It's simply unbelievable. So what I'm going to do on next week's episode is tell you uh, uh, about the court proceedings, but that's not the main thing. I need to tell you what this dude says. And, And to this day, it, uh, his appeals process and what he says, and it's just when when you hear it I and mean, when I read his letters to the court, it just now I've I've looked in the face of evil so many times and I had to deal with it, and you know sometimes you have to cry with them or pray with them or do whatever you know uh, to get the juice right. But what this guy says and when you hear it. I think it'll give you a really, real eye-opener on the different levels of evil in the world. Real life, real crime. Hey, y'all, let me tell you about every plate. Experience fuller plates and a fuller wallet with America's Best Value Meal Kit. Every plate makes home cooking easy and affordable, and it's a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. Think of it this way: one meal from every plate is the same price as a cup of coffee. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes. And that's definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. To me, the value in every plate sets it apart from all the other meal kits. Y'all, the last one I ate was crispy Caesar chicken with roasted carrots and garlic mashed potatoes. The ingredients that came with this meal, y'all, were Yukon gold potatoes, carrots, garlic, sour cream, panko breadcrumbs, shredded Parmesan, chicken breast, and Caesar dressing. And let me tell you what, it's fire, y'all. I'm telling you, it's fire. And if you don't know me, when I say fire, that means love. And then my family loves it. I love it. And it's delicious. Get started with Every Plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to EveryPlate.com and entering code RLRC199. That's up to a $100 value. Again, try Every Plate for just $1.99 per meal by going to EveryPlate.com and entering code RLRC199. So, with that, y'all, I'm gonna wrap up this week's episode. Mr. Nice Guy. All right, so let me tell y'all some things have been going on real quick. Obviously, we haven't dropped episode in several weeks, and that was partly because we're were taking two weeks to do uh, the swap over to our new partnership with iHeartRadio and Cloud 10 Media and also to launch our Real Life Real Crime app, which is an app store. Y'all go download it. It's freaking amazing. But what happened since is Hurricane Ida, and I need to take a moment to talk about this because it's important. First of all, everybody in California that's been dealing with the wildfires and everything, our prayers go to y'all. But um, people of Louisiana, Hurricane Ida came, and y'all had a bad feeling the night before. I said, I told my friends, I said, listen, I said, this is going to be the one now considering I work every name storm for 20 years, including Katrina and Rita and all that stuff. And it, I just, I just had a bad feeling about it. And guess what? I was right. So, but myself, my family, my, my big house down on the Island in Maripal, that's where I sent my wife and kids. Cause there's no trees on the Island. Okay. i Went to the country place, which is close to be close to my parents, my elderly parents, and uh, but it's surrounded by big, big trees, right? And I knew I was going to lose power. I lost power at 745 on that Saturday night. And today, as I'm recording this, it's been nine days, and I still don't have power. It's the longest time I've been without being on social media. But So the storm comes through, total devastation. And, y'all, Hurricane Ida hit the coast of Louisiana as a category five, the strongest hurricane on record to ever hit this state. Yeah, uh, you know, we lost our house, okay, my family's alive. Okay. And and thanks to Aaron Goolsby and Lori Goolsby and Emily another guy who went and got her out by boat. She wasn't gonna leave. Though the, the after the storm, the next day, the river comes up and floods the house. But only like a foot and a half, but in my wife, but she would, she didn't want to leave. And I get that. But Aaron and them went in, brought supplies and they, they covered my house, uh, you know, with the blue tarp. And my wife ends up getting out and they housed her for two nights from y'all. And the, thank you. And y'all, by the way, Lori Goolsby and Emily are both dream team moderators. And Aaron's just a, Super good dude. But let me tell you what happens. I really didn't sleep that night as it came through. The worst part came over me about 3 o'clock, and I'm hearing trees pop like matches. Next next day, I get up, and I get on the four-wheeler because my road's like two miles way back in the woods. And I've got no cell service, by the way. We, I was on the phone with my wife at 1 o'clock in the morning when they were getting slammed and lost, lost cell service. I tried to get out on my four-wheeler to the main highway to go check on my parents. and But I got trees down everywhere, all across the road. But I was able to go around most of them uh, on my driveway through the woods on the four-wheeler. But then I got to one point where I couldn't. And I just, I could not. So I had to get out. I used my chainsaw, got it stuck on a tree, ended up going back. My, my buddy had messaged, I was getting text messages like twice a day. I get all these dumps the text but I couldn't respond out. But my buddy, that you know, told the night before, this is going to be a bad one. He had said, "Are you okay?" And then I would try to respond, "No, I can't get out." But so I get another text uh, dump a couple of hours later. It's my brother in Houston saying nobody can get in touch with mom and daddy. Well, they're ten minutes away by vehicle, probably six miles on foot, and I was going, so I went out. And, and walk, you know, I get to the main highway, the state highway. That's some bitch is full of trees, but I could hear a chainsaw in the distance. I, I got a text out to one of my friends and uh, hoping he can make it up there and give me a ride, at least to my parents. I, but I can't even get walked down the state highway. I'm having to go back in the woods on foot and get around these trees. And guess what happens? I get on the other side of the trees, and who do I see? My two friends from the night before cutting in, uh, one of them is on a big piece of equipment, a skid steer, whatever you want to call it, the other ones ran on a chainsaw, and I, I gave them hugs, and they're like, Rob, we've been trying to get to you all day. We've been cutting down this road. We we cut with, you know, came first with a big truck and the chainsaw and got a couple of these big, I mean, I, I'm talking about huge trees, y'all, like oak trees, I mean, just giants, right? He said, we did the first couple, and they were like, shit on that. Let's go get the big trailer and some heavy equipment and get it out here. So I said, but my other buddy had showed up, and I said, listen, obviously you can't get to my road yet. Y'all keep cutting. I got to go check on my parents. Went check checked on my parents. They were fine. Finally got service again to my wife. They are fine. She's staying. Couldn't have got to her anyway. None of the roads were open. Uh, come back. You know, it takes the rest of the evening to cut all the way to my house. Shane McBride, lifer and now dream team moderator from Wisconsin had already been in contact with my other friend, Kevin Edenfield, and he's already, he's loaded up, spent all his own money. He's been in contact with different lifers, and he drove in almost 16 hours that night. The next morning, I get up, take a bunch of the meat out of my freezers, and the same guys that came and cut me out, Mitch, in Colby, we would go up to Mitch's shop in Clinton, Louisiana, and there's another guy, one of his employees there, with a big barbecue pit, and and Kevin's there with his pot. So we feed the community. I can't get, I still, I can't get to my house in Maripal, and the, the island's flooded and everything else, but they're safe. We feed the community that day. And that night, late, Shane McBride shows up. Not to my place, but he shows up in, in Clinton at Kevin's, and they go and deliver supplies to the lifers, the other lifers, y'all, that he's been in contact through Facebook because I got him to do a couple posts for me on Facebook. Then the next day, Shane and Kevin and I cooked again, and we went into St. Helena Parish. And, then, y'all, everything's destroyed. Uh, Katrina and uh, a dick on Ida, and, and I know... And I worked it. You seen the pictures from Katrina, the devastation? Ida was much stronger. We go in the St. Helena. We got. um, We were fortunate enough to feed the sheriff's office and Nat Williams, the sheriff, and his people, and the first responders, and and you know feed everybody up uh, until we ran out of food. And then the next day, the next day, I had to take out more meat in. Kevin and Shane McBride go to Jefferson Parish and they feed the sheriff's office and Pete, first responders down there, till they run out of food. And then the next day, they take more meat and go. And y'all, what I'm trying to say is they're even feeding today, the next day, which would have been yesterday. They're still, uh, Shane left and had, had to go home to his family and his business. And, but people came together or people were coming together. Helping each other, Louisiana strong. Hurricane Ida was a real bitch, and it destroyed everything. Uh, I don't know how many people are dead now because of it. And I, I'm not taking away from uh, Katrina. You know, the Katrina levees rogue and that's where thousands of people died. But the, it it is more destruction from the storm itself than anything I've ever seen. And, in my life in total devastation i made it to my home finally yesterday my in mara and it looked like a nuclear war zone and on top of that i've got thousands of dead fish in my yard from the oxygen kill when it came through that's why i haven't been on social media in nine days i still don't have power and I'm, I'm recording in Toby's studio today and, and, and Toby's wife is washing me some clean clothes and I finally got to take, take my second shower in a week. So you know, send your prayers, help out your neighbor if you can. Louisiana strong, American strong, Life are strong. Your life was from around the world. everybody sent all the messages and, and everything. Thank you so much. You're the, simply the best in the world. I love and appreciate each and every one of you, and I will never forget. I, I, I cried one time two nights after when I was sitting in my shed and no air conditioner, and, and uh, I was able, for some reason, was able to read the Shane's Facebook post and all the, the lifeless responses from around the world. That made me tear up, y'all. You're beautiful people, and I love you. Cindy loves you. Yeah, and, and with that, you know, Lopa is, is still my main jam, right, and my dedication. And if you are a lifer in Belgium and you want to sign up to be an organ donor, go to, to lopa.org, fill it out. doesn't take but a minute or two. Give the gift of life. Help somebody else out, and that's it. I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. (laughs) Peace. Real Life, Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Tomplay in conjunction with iHeartRadio and Cloud 10 Media.